Welcome to the Masculinity Podcast, conversations about masculinity, men, and our relationships with them. My name's Mel, and I invite you to pop the kettle on, make a mug of your hot beverage of choice, and join us for a relaxed and open conversation. Today on the podcast, I'm very excited to welcome my friend Niels. Niels and I have known each other for a few years, and I consider him to be one of my dearest friends. He is a polymath with an engineering background and has worked as an engineer, a brewer, a ski designer, a sailor, a math teacher, a rigger, a book editor, and way more. His current focus is on mental health and addiction recovery, and his exploration in those areas have taken him into men's work and what's called shadow work. Now, Niels has suffered from chronic pain since a nerve injury back in 2009, and through research and experimentation on his own body, he's been able to transform his experience of pain and regain an able-bodied lifestyle. He believes that chronic pain, mental health, and addiction can share a common root, and that doing the recovery work can be so beautiful an experience that a person can become grateful for the injury in the first place. I know I have benefited a lot from my conversations with Niels, and I'm really excited to have him bringing um, those conversations to the podcast today. Thanks for being here. Hello. So just to situate a little bit here, this is something that's come up in conversations between you and I a lot. You had a lot of privilege growing up. You were born into circumstances that afforded a lot of uh, social privileges. And, and um, can you speak a little bit to that? Um, yeah. And uh, I just want to start by saying like what we think of as as privilege may not be exactly as it seems, but you are absolutely right to describe me that way. I did grow up with a, a family that had money and uh, was have a, a private school education and and lots of opportunity for me. I'm also a white cisgendered male uh, and have all the privilege that comes with that as well. Um, so much so that. Uh, it often st- stuns me to know uh, uh, about the reality of those who don't have that kind of um, privilege, right? Like the, uh, for my own self, I, I never feel unsafe walking around the city at night, and it doesn't occur to me even that others do. But back to the original point of, of taking issue with the privilege, um, in, in my current focus on the mental health, for me, the the people who are truly privileged are those who have proper connection inside their family, uh, mm-hmm. who were raised with love and connection. And uh, that's not me. Um, and I would trade in a heartbeat the the economic situation that, that I was raised in for uh, a situation with much less economic privilege, but one where I had proper connection, proper relationships with my parents, and and was taught to love people rather than taught to fear people. So absolutely, yes, I've, I've got a, an awful lot of privilege, um, but the the privilege doesn't make up for what people need. When you've described to me this, the circumstances that you grew up in, I often think of uh, the TV show Dynasty, where you have like an... is this, this is a soap opera, right? 
It's a soap opera. It's like one of those yeah. 80s soap operas. And you have a very wealthy, extended family with complex dynamics of, you know, there's the first wife and the second wife and there's children with each and, and uh, a lot of privilege and yeah. um, the kind of uh, drama that happens and the problems that happen might be labeled first world problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I grew up watching that and it was very compelling watching um but there's uh there's a kind of waking up from that i would imagine that happens i mean i i can i can see that in my own life of waking up to my own privilege that i had through uh the circumstances uh and you know of my birth and and my father's work but what was that like for you i mean you're growing up as this um white male uh with economic privilege um with you know access to a lot of educational opportunities that the average canadian man doesn't even get when did you start to realize that your experience of life was maybe different from how other men were experiencing life uh i think there are probably a couple of different moments um of that, that I've, I've done that waking up in stages and I'm, I'm very much still doing that waking up. So I think initially it began in, in high school. So I went to Upper Canada College in Toronto, um, which is a very expensive place to go and a very privileged place to go. And we used to hear a lot from the, the people at UCC, uh, the phrase to whom much is given, much is expected. Uh, and that I, I agree with the way that phrase is stated, but I first started to see the holes in that, that thinking by the way it's interpreted um, from that institution. Uh, and there's a couple of, of ways that that kind of goes sideways. Um, the first is just how out of touch those with privilege are, um, like how out of touch they are with the needs of those who haven't got the privilege. Mm-hmm. Which is, it kind of comes back to my, my st- uh, statement about not even realizing that, that other people walk around the city at night in fear for their physical safety, right? Like those who are, are brought up in Upper Canada College do not know what it's like to have no bootstraps by which you can pull yourself up, right? So they, they see the world as a, a place where people get ahead by their own efforts, by their own competition. But if, if you're, born uh with like fetal alcohol syndrome or or you're raised by parents who are addicts um and you have to inherit their ways of coping with the world because that's what happens when you're you're being raised right you you inherit your parents ways of coping with the world Mm -hmm. you don't have a set of bootstraps to reach down and pull yourself up by and and so that sense of like the the sense that UCC gives to its students that um, people work for their station in life uh, is is really misguided. People work for their station in life if they have resources to move forward. But if you have absolutely no resources to move forward, then you are are stuck in your station. Life at Upper Canada College that that started to become clear. Um, there's also sort of a, a double standard there. I didn't like the culture there, and it took me a while to put my finger on what it was. I started going there when I was 13, but by the by the time I left Upper Canada College, I, I could see that the 
the culture there was really quite corrosive. And there was an incident in my last year there where one of the boys' hockey uh, sports teams, I think it was the hockey team, was traveling for competition and they ended up down in New York. Uh, and they were in a hotel, in a high rise hotel. And some of the boys got their hands on some alcohol and they got drunk and they had a little party in one of the rooms and ended up throwing the, the furniture off the balcony and into the streets. Wow. And they got arrested. Um, and the coach went and, and called, you know, some of their parents and the parents used their contacts to get the kids bailed out of jail. And a letter went out to all of the parents describing the incident in which the principal was, was asking about like, what is the right punishment for these boys going forward? One of the boys who was involved in the in incident was supposed to be um, the head boy or the head steward in the year that follows. So he was, was going to be in the graduating class the year that followed this incident. Uh, for those of you who have no idea what head boy or head steward is, it's a, <laughs> it's a definitely left over as a, um, a part of that institution when those, those schools were all boarding houses and each uh, boarding house had a... Um, sort of a boy that's elected into a, a position called steward. It, it's almost like student government, but it's much more old and British and much less democratic. I, I was going to say, it's a very British thing and it, it's in Harry Potter. Most people would know it from Harry Potter. Okay, there you go. I, I'm unfamiliar with Harry Potter. so that. Um, but this head boy, I, I mean, I think those boys should have had to go through the criminal justice system. And, and I understand that the criminal justice system in the States is considerably more severe than it is here, but they should have had to deal with it that way. And, and at the very least be expelled from uh, upper counter college for not, um, for doing what they did and representing the school so poorly, but none of them were expelled. And the, in the letter that went home with the parents, they were asking, um, you know, should this head boy be allowed to be head boy next year? And he was. Uh, wow. So the, the consequences for those in stations where they, they can afford to get out of consequences are so much less, right? There, there just aren't the same consequences for good and bad action for those who have immense privilege. And so the, the, from high school, I understood that like there's no, the consequences aren't the same and that there's uh, an out-of-touchness, there's a misunderstanding of those to whom Upper Canada feels like they owe their action, right? That to whom much is given, much is expected, right? That, that expectation to give back to society is a real disconnection about what society needs from those with privilege. Mm -hmm. I just want to comment in there this message that if you have privilege you can escape the consequences of your actions. We see that happen across the board. I mean, I think of instances where um, top athletes are, um, are found uh, to be abusers and assaulters and have raped women and there's no consequences for their actions. And, and there is even the question of, well, we don't want to impact their future career. So we're going to let yeah. them off from the consequences of this. Yeah. Even though those who are less privileged have to suffer consequences that does affect their career. And so, yeah, this is, this is institutionalized, right? Like this was taught to us, not directly in Upper Canada College, the, the teachers would be ashamed to say such a thing directly, 
but it absolutely was taught to us that you know, you, the consequences for your life are different from the consequences of others. Mm. Um, but that um, understanding of privilege continued. Uh, like I, I work uh, at the moment as a, a rigger with uh, uh, it's a, a labor job. Um, my father and stepmother were openly contemptuous of laborers laborers when I was growing up. And so it's, it's been a real head trip for me to accept that I love this labor job as much as I do and getting to know the people in it who, um, you know, a lot of them just had to start working out of high school. They didn't have another choice. There's no funds. There's no opportunity to go get a higher education. You've got your high school. You've got to go to work. Uh, and just being with those people and, uh, understanding their struggles and, and how different they are from my own or, or what my own working life has looked like. That's one of the places where I've, I've started to understand that privilege. And the other place is, is doing mental health work, doing my own mental health work. So in, in my bio there that you gave at the beginning of the podcast, it, it says that I'm interested in mental health work, and that's a personal journey. Uh, it's because I've gone through my own personal mental health crisis in the last few years have, have been um, suicidal and, and um, quite depressed uh, and have, have had addiction issues as well. And doing my mental health work and doing my work with addiction has brought me in contact with, with other people who are doing mental health work and other people who, who fall into addictive, uh, into addictions. And that's shown me the privilege as well. Um, my father was an addict. Uh, my grandfather on my mother's side was an alcoholic. And, and just seeing the way that kind of unfolded in my own family and, and seeing it in my own journey has, has sort of brought that, um, that privilege into the light as well, um, watching how people have to, to deal with it when they haven't got privilege and how people deal with it when they have. Respect my dad. He was a, a cocaine addict for much of my childhood, and he's clean now, and he has been since I was 19. So he's been clean for 21 years now. Wow. Yeah, which is great. Um, and, and it's been very interesting. The relationship that I have with my dad has changed an awful lot through this mental health work, and, and part of it is being open with him ab about my own addiction issue. And, and still, I have a, a very hard time connecting with him, mm. uh, even though we both share that addiction issue and we've, we've both had to do recovery work and we've both had to have an, um, somewhat, anyway, an, an accounting of what that addiction has brought into our own lives and the, the, the mess that it's left in the wake. My dad dealt with it in a very different way than I am dealing with mine and in a very different way from the way a lot of people are dealing with their addictions. But, but everybody's path is unique. My dad definitely was using his privilege to do it. Um, I also am using my privilege to, to deal with my addiction. My dad was much less open about the work that he's doing. So uh, he went into um, a recovery center and lied about why he was there. He, he told everybody he was going to a, a place for stress management he never did the sort of making amends that a lot of the addiction recovery work demands. To date, he and I have had two conversations about addiction. One very recently was, was this past year about my own 
uh, work through addiction. Um, but the other one was when I was 19 and um, he, he admitted to the family about what he was going through, that he'd, he'd been doing cocaine uh, and that he was in recovery and he wanted to tell my two brothers and I about it. And that conversation was, was short and focused very much on what his experience of his addiction was about rather than on what my and my brother's experience of growing up with a coke addict was like. Mm. You know, there's, there's damage there that has remained unaddressed between the two of us. Um, and naturally, I inherited my dad's coping mechanism, which is to turn to an escape in a chemical form. There's a thread in what you're describing that resonates with what you talked about with your experience at college, at, at school, this idea of being able to escape from the consequences of actions. Yeah. And the impact that addiction can have, like you just said, the, the conversation with your dad when he shared with you about the addictions, there was no acknowledgement of the impact that that had on you and your brothers. It was still all centered on his experience. And granted, he may not have had the capacity to understand that because presumably he grew up in very much the same environment that he then raised you in, in terms of an education that teaches you that you don't have to deal with the consequences of your actions. More than that, that absolutely is a part of it, but there, there's more than that. And in the, the two conversations that he and I have had, the, what's missing from both of those conversations was the emotional content. What mm. drove us, each of us, to be addicts? That, I think, is, is a, a cultural problem, but one that affects men in particular. Um, and it's that connection with our fathers, connection with others, and acknowledgement of our emotional, internal emotional lives and celebration of our internal emotional lives. And so even though the, the first conversation I had with my dad about addiction focused on his experience of it, it was not ex focused on what was it like to be an addict for him, what, what drove him to, to become an addict, why did the drugs matter to him. A lot of that, I think, comes from that lack of emotional contact. His dad was not somebody who had very much um, emotional support. Mm. Uh, or certain, not, not emotional support. was not somebody who was capable of really speaking about his emotions. And so my dad was somebody who was never capable of speaking about his emotions. And for me, that ended up being um, something that, that like emotional content was dangerous. Uh, in my family, my, my dad and my mother divorced when I was young, and any contact between the two of them almost always erupted into a fight. Uh, and I found myself being the go-between from a very young age uh, and working very hard cognitively to know what's the right thing to say rather than having my own experience about it. Um, and I, I think my dad had the same thing with his dad, his parents remained married, but, but he was never able to have an emotional experience and go to his dad about it, or, or was not able to tell his dad what his emotional experience of being raised is. I, I can remember a story that my dad tells about his dad. My dad wanted to um, ski as a young man. He asked his, his dad, can I, can I get some, some skis, some ski lessons and whatnot? 
and uh, true to form, his dad had all the money needed to make such a thing happen. But what he did is he went out to a thrift store and he bought an old pair of skis that were out of date and an old pair of boots and, and took my dad out to uh, a local hill, set him up in that equipment and let him go down the hill. And my dad went down the hill and he crashed and, and tumbled and got all tangled up in his skis uh, and was struggling to get up. And, and his dad from the top of the hill said, you still want to learn how to ski and turn around and left. Wow. And to go back a generation further, so this is my grandfather, my father's father, uh, emigrated to Canada from Denmark. And his dad was a, a gambler and an alcoholic. And his dad was, uh, was a very capable tailor. He was uh, tailored to the royal court in England until his gambling debts caught up with him. And he had to take his family back to, to Denmark, where he was originally born. So my grandfather was born in England and raised there until he was 10 and then taken swiftly back to Denmark and lived there until he was um, his late teens or early 20s when he came over to Canada, followed his sister over to Canada to make a, an opportunity. And after he had, had made opportunity for himself and kept a job through the Depression, um, he went back to go visit his father in Denmark and had to, he had three weeks vacation. And he was going to spend all three to go visit his father. It took a week to get across the ocean and a week to return. So he had a week to be in Denmark. And when he arrived, he, he made all these plans. And when he arrived in Denmark, he found that his dad had gone off on a hunting trip and wasn't going to be there for the time that he was there to visit his family. So that's the emotional legacy that exists in the men in my family. That's what we inherit one generation after another. It's just this, this emotional absence. Um, there's no connection to your father emotionally, and there's no room in the way you were raised to have your own emotional life. Emotional content signals danger rather than experience, and uh, that emotional content needs to be suppressed, and you need to be a, you know, a, a computer about the goings-on between the people in your life. There's a, a lot of pain in those experiences, too. A lot of... Um... You know, we, we avoid things that are painful, just like we learn to avoid sticking our hand in a fire. We we don't want to deal with the discomfort of being faced with something. And and again, it goes back to like the, the consequences. Like once you've started off a relationship with an emotional disconnection, how do you move into connection? Um, and I, I'm reminded of, um, you know, some things that have been going around recently that I've seen around how addiction is the absence of connection or is a consequence of the absence of connection. Yeah. I really hear that in the, in the description that you have of this lineage of masculinity and how this has been passed down from generation to generation. And, and it's so interesting to hear that because, you know, that journey of the men in your family is also the journey that afforded them, you know, some incredible social and economic privileges, but has left has left many of them feeling empty inside. Absolutely. And, and the, it's not only connection with others and emotional connection with others. It's, it's an emotional connection with yourself. It's allowing yourself to have an emotional life. You, you talk about pain. And, and emotional pain, uh, pain in relationships, and, and for my own self, physical pain. And um, the striving to avoid that, uh, working to, to go away from pain, 
is absolutely an example of not allowing yourself to have an emotional life. Pain is inevitable. Pain is a part of being alive. It's a part of being an animal. It's the thing that drives us towards feeding ourselves. It's the thing that drives us towards procreation, uh, the, the disparity between pain and pleasure. And, and not allowing yourself to have pain as part of your spiritual life is one of those things that leads to addiction. So it's not only a lack of connection with other people, it's a lack of understanding what pain is there for. It's a lack of seeing the beauty that exists in embracing your own pain, emotional, physical, psychological. Uh, all of that is, is part of the addiction and, and part of what has been passed down through my own family. So go, talking about pain, um, you had an injury back in 2009. So this is over 10 years ago. And, um, you know, before that time, I, I didn't know you back then, but I know that you were incredibly active. You, you would ski, you would ride your motorcycle, you would, you were a very able-bodied, active person, and you had all the resources at your disposal to go and pursue those interests. But having an injury and then having to deal with consequences that are not ones that you can escape from, they're there in your body. What was your emotional experience in that? That's a, a great question because uh, undoubtedly my emotional experience in that experience led to and deepened my addiction. Um, mm -hmm. That same thing, that, that desire to avoid pain. Uh, and I can remember very early on in that journey turning to hedonism, uh, a way to try and block the pain out. So ending up with, with a, a very active sex life and doing all kinds of excellent drugs and uh, going out dancing and, and that kind of stuff to, to try to avoid it. But I guess first, like the background on the injury is that I, I caught a, a virulent strain of flu and I had a, an autoimmune reaction. So my body attacked um, the, the nerve network in the right side of my body. Uh, it just destroyed the, the myelination around the nerves, which is, is the insulation around them that lets the, the nerves conduct electrical signal. So I lost a lot of motor function uh, on the right side of my body, in my shoulder, in my hip, in my abdomen. I ended up with a, a ton of lymph mass, extra lymph mass in weird places. So there's like lumps under my, uh, the, at the base of my skull and in my neck and stuff like that. That's all this extra lymph mass and, and some other symptoms, but, but also just this lingering general nerve pain when I wasn't using my body and this acute sharp nerve pain when I was. Um, and I had to go through uh, an extensive recovery for my shoulder. So at, at one point I had, I was in a sling for half a year uh, and, and was like unable to hold a full coffee cup out at arm's length out in front of me. So that's, that's like where I started. Um, you asked that question. One experience that, that popped into my mind was working with the doctor and, and talking with him about the pain that I was experiencing doing the recovery work and him telling me that that's just going to be a feature of my life from this point forward. And there was a lot of fear and a lot of rejection around that. It took me a long time to accept that he was going to be right about that. Turns out he wasn't entirely right about that. <laughs> uh, because of the work that I've done since, my experience of the pain has changed considerably. It's not absent, but it, it's changed considerably. And, and also asking him about like 
you know, can I get some drugs to deal with this? Can I get some painkillers? And he absolutely refused, to his credit, absolutely refused. And, and I'm so glad he did, because if I had gone down the opioid track of things, I'm not sure I would have been able to do my recovery work as I'm doing it now. Uh, but my initial reaction to that was a lot of fear, but fear that I tried to bury, absolutely tried to bury by turning to hedonism. I was like, if I can drown out the pain signal with a pleasure signal, if I can just keep, if I can drown out the pain signal with a pleasure signal, if I can just keep that pleasure signal loud enough constantly, then I'll be okay. And that doesn't work. Nobody can sustain that kind of hedonism. And, and what's more, we have this tendency to like uh, uh, set our baseline, our normal to whatever our usual con uh, conditions are. So, you know, what is pleasurable this year becomes baseline next year and you have to amp up from there. Mm. And, and that's not sustainable either. But I don't think at the time I was even aware of my emotional life, my emotional content around the idea of being in pain. I knew there was a lot of rejection of it, but that idea of like, I'll just increase the pleasure signal was focused very much on the physical aspect of my life at the time. But looking back at it now, I can see that the same thing could be said about the emotional content that came as a result of that prognosis, you know, that, that I was also looking for this pleasure so that I didn't have to feel the fear. I was also looking for this pleasure so I didn't have to feel the anger that went along with that. Mm. It, it felt so unfair to me that I, you know, I, I got on the wrong bus and I caught a flu and, and that's why I'm fucking paralyzed right now. That's why I'm going to be in pain forever. But the, there was no room in my life at the time for allowing that anger to be there. And it spilled out. It spilled out onto people, it spilled out into my activities, it, it, it reflected, I reflected it back on my own self, I took my anger out on myself. And that's, that's absolutely a problem. We have this evolutionary compulsion, um, when we, we feel an emotional state to take action to solve it, right? So when that's, that's working the right way, you could imagine, um, stepping out into the street to cross it at the wrong moment. And you look down the street and you see a car barreling at you. You feel fear. You have an, uh, a thought that follows on the heels of fear, which is I need to get out of the street. And then you take action, which follows on the heel of, uh, of the thought, which is to step back out of the street. And in that case, the action resolves the emotional distress. And, and that's a model that we culturally are always trying to apply. But there are some things where the action is not immediate enough to, to resolve the emotional distress or no action will do it. So the anger that I had around ending up in pain, whether or not you think I deserve to be in anger or not, you know, I can totally see somebody saying, well, you came from such privilege about time you experienced a little downfall. Sure. But whether or not you believe that, like the anger existed and there wasn't any action that I could take that would resolve the experience of being angry about it. And in those cases, the, the way to go about resolving the emotional state is to simply have the emotion, is to make room for it, make time for it, allow the emotion in, allow it to, to show up, develop 
dissipate and go away. And it's like the, the Buddhists say that everything is transient. But if you shove that emotion down and, and push it away, it waits for you. And in fact, it, it accumulates. It, it gathers more of its own self. It, it combines with other emotional states that you have, have suppressed, that you've pushed down. So whatever anger I was feeling about um, the, the way I was raised that I never got a chance to experience for myself because you know emotional content always meant danger. So you keep the emotional content at bay. The, the anger over the injury would combine with that other repressed anger and would just get stronger. And I, I like to think of the the emotion that's suppressed is not only waiting for you, like it's in the corner doing push-ups, right? It's, it's, getting, it's getting stronger. It's getting ready to, to come back at you so that it will be acknowledged. And, and the, the key there, if no action, no thought, no action will resolve your emotional state is to have your emotional state, is to, to let it in, let it develop so that it can, can dissipate and go away. Culturally, we don't have that lesson. And that is particularly true with men because one of those ideas of masculinity is to be able to step into action. Uh, and I, I think that's a, a good description of part of masculinity. Absolutely being masculine is, is having the ability to step into action, but action doesn't always work. I have to say, as you're describing what it was like for you in that experience of um, the, the anger of feeling like I'm paralyzed because I got on the wrong bus and going through the recovery process and the frustration of that, I had a really strong emotional experience. I felt a lot of grief and um, it's a kind of grief that relates to loss. And it, if it, it's a very overwhelming feeling because as you describe that, I can hear a resonance with stories that I've heard from so many men and, you know, men who um, maybe had some similar privileges to you and, and men who haven't had those privileges. But you're right. There is this construct, this expectation that men are going to be always ready to be able to leap into action. And I, I've seen it in my work as a body worker, that there is a different way that a lot of men relate to their body than the way that a lot of uh, women and other genders will relate to their body. And, and that is a kind of disassociation. And very often I see this more in men who have worked very physically challenging uh, jobs or have had very physically challenging hobbies, whether that's, you know, they go bodybuilding at the gym or they've been a logger for 30 years or whatever, but their body has taken abuse. Their body experiences pain but the it's almost like receiving the signal of that pain creates a story of I'm not going to be enough. This somehow makes me less than as a man. And therefore, I must shut out that signal of pain. I must shut down that story of inferiority. And I, I must drown it. I must make the, the sounds of pleasure louder. And, and I've definitely seen people coping with their that sort of inferiority complex that can come up from having a physical disability, whether that's a visible one or an invisible one. I've seen that come through in the way that people will pursue hedonism and um, will fall into addictions, whether that's a substance addiction or an addiction of particular kinds of behavior. I've also seen that in the way that people will um, because they're feeling uh, small and uh, weaker 
due to a physical condition, they try to make themselves bigger through the way that they use anger and, and abuse their power and, and enact dominance over others. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm a, a yes and a no to, to a lot of what you said. The, the, the first part about the disassociation is, is such a strong yes. Um, and I'm not sure if it's particularly a, a masculine thing to think of your body as, as simply a thing that carries your brain around or to think of your body as something separate of who you are or whether that's a Western thing. Uh, but I like to think of, of it. I kind of reverse the arrow. And I like to think that who I am, my experience of who I am is what my body is doing. But the, the idea, the, the second point about the, the experience, the masculine experience of pain, there is a certain celebration and a certain glory associated in overcoming physical pain. And you see that a lot in our celebration of sport and uh, our celebration of war. Uh, and the the action movies that we see, right? The the on the hero's journey in the action movies, the the hero always has to get beaten up to a certain degree. Uh, and there's that that celebration of overcoming pain, but it's it's always overcoming pain as if the pain is something separate from you. You're always bulldozing it, or, or rising above, or going over it as if it's a mountain. There's an up and over kind of thing, rather than an acceptance of the experience of being in pain rather than a welcoming in of the experience of being pain, being in pain. And I think that's, that is a particularly masculine trait to celebrate this like grr kind of energy to get past the pain, this, this grit, this sacrifice to get past the pain rather than welcoming it in, rather than feeling it as a gift, rather than associating it, as, as a way to bring your, to, to be your body rather than to be separate from your body. And I think in the time that I've known you, I've seen you um, oscillate between those two different relationships with your own Absolutely. pain. <laughs> yes. I've, I've seen you literally grr at the pain in the morning. And, yeah. um, and I, I've witnessed you, it, it's a really powerful journey to witness someone go through. I've witnessed you through all these different levels of grief and anger and frustration and denial and acceptance with the way that your, your body experiences the pain and the way that you've had to adapt your life around it. I mean, I, I, I'm in awe of the dedication that you have had to managing your pain and changing the experience of your pain. And, and I say those as two separate things because I think there was a shift for you. There was a time where everything was dedicated to managing the pain. And I think in the last while, there's been a shift to changing the relationship with the pain. And I, I'm wondering if you could speak to that and how that shift happened. I, I have my own observations on it, but I, I want to see what your reflections on it are. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm so curious to hear what your observations are. But that, that you, you say you admire the dedication that I've got. And the dedication is easy when the pain is physical and unending because you are always being reminded that there's work to be done in this moment. So the dedication is easy, right? The, the pain is an impulse to act or, or is so easy to interpret as an impulse to act, whether it's, it's psychological or not. Um, but yeah, the, the grr 
I'm going to power through this. Absolutely. How it's part of the, the hedonism strategy, right? Like as, as each hedonistic practice returned to baseline, there's a certain amount of GUR to like move forward and, and increase the amount of hedonism, increase the amount of pleasure signal that's coming in. Um, but also, I, I mean, that impulse is there in me. It's, it's part of the fabric of who I am. Um, recently, a, a big part of my journey has been meditation and mindfulness. And when I started on that journey, there was this sense of like, the, the, there was this gur energy that went with it, right? And it could be summed up in the phrase of like, I am going to meditate so fucking hard. <laughs> and, and, I mean, you can hear the absurdity in that. If, you, if that's where you're coming from, you're not meditating. And, um, it, there's no powering over an obstacle in meditation, right? It's an acceptance practice. Um, and, and I absolutely have had to go through learning my mistakes when it comes to pain. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm focused now not on, on managing, not on getting past, but I'm, I'm focused now on what's truly healing. Um, and even in there, in that focus on the healing, there is a certain GUR aspect to it. There is a certain impulse to action that has, has served me. So I've, I've managed to turn that impulse into action, into something that from something that was providing short-term relief and being dangerous in the long term, i.e. getting me into drug addiction. Um, have been able to, to use that impulse to do the healing work. Uh, so a, a big part of healing for me has been pushing back against the, the damage. Um, so there's a lot of exercise, there's a lot of focus on um, functional movement, which is very baseline floor work, gymnastics floor work. Um, I do a lot of bouldering. Um, to, 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 to work on functional movement. And it's, it's in that place that uh, the impulse into action and the desire to overcome pain, to bulldoze the pain has served me. But then there's a lot of others. That's only, that's a narrow side of it. There's a discipline side. So um, the most effective tool, the most immediate tool I have to manage my pain it's both immediate and good in the long term is to work with, with my diet. So I've, I've done a lot of experimentation on my own self and I'm, I've got a, a really good understanding of what diet minimizes my pain and minimizes my symptoms. And it's not what I want to be eating. <laughs> I would, I would much rather be like doing the hedonism thing with what I put into my mouth. So there's a, a discipline as well which has less of that GUR aspect. Uh, and then, you know, getting even further away from that, there's an acceptance thing, not resisting the pain, whether it's physical, um, psychological or emotional, right? Like you have to let your emotions in. You have to let that anger have its moment. The same is true of your physical pain. You have to accept it. You have to have it. You have to allow it to be there. You have to allow it to be part of your body or part of your existence. And then going even further than that, there's a love aspect. 
to all of this, mm -hmm. which, which has very little grr associated with it. You know, that I've had to learn to love myself in my addiction, in my mental health work, in my physical pain. I used to, to call my body, my corpse. As uh, you know, when I, I would get out in the morning, get up in the morning, roll out of bed and, and feel the pain in my shoulder, feel the pain in my hips. I'd be like, oh, I got to do something about this old corpse of mine. And that construction is entirely lacking in love. There's no love there for my body. There's no compassion. There's no gentleness there for a body in pain. Right. And, um, and I've had to learn to love myself to, to love myself psychologically. I've had to learn to love my experience of my body pain and all. Mm -hmm. um, so the, the transformation that you've seen, it's not so much a re rejection of that impulse into action as it is a rebalancing of it. Um, that impulse into action that's, that's so masculine is an important thing. It's absolutely an important capability capacity that we have, but it's so easy to misdirect it. And I don't think that our need for action, that our need to bulldoze past circumstances which are uncomfortable or painful, our need to feel um, violence, I don't think those are, are bad aspects of who we are. I think they are aspects of who we are that can be destructive when they are misdirected. But it is, it is equally as dangerous to deny that they exist as it is to misdirect them. Thank you for sharing all that. That was a, a rambling answer. Is that, <laughs> is that what you were looking for? <laughs> well, here's what I saw in your process. Because, I, I mean, I like I said, I really do value all this work that you did and all the the research on yourself. I mean, when you are experiencing a condition that is so unusual and so rare that, you know, you you're basically asking people to have basic, you know, more than basic medical knowledge to even understand the mechanics of what was going on for your body in the first place. I mean, like you said, there is no choice when there's the pain is so loud, but you know, it does take something to be able to meet that head on and to say, I'm, I'm going to tackle this. I'm not going to accept that this is going to be a deteriorating state forever. But where I saw things shift for you was it, it's almost like all those pieces the diet the exercise regime and everything that helped you kind of find more capacity in yourself and then there came a point where the hedonism was no longer working and you had to stop and look inside instead of running away and i saw you begin to examine more closely the emotional life that had been pushed aside for however long and to really actually come into connection with yourself in that way as a as a beginning point to coming into deeper connection with other people and it's been really interesting to me and you know in our conversations when i hear about you doing the work on you know reaching out to your father and working on you know what is possible in this connection here that hasn't been possible until now and working on healing other relationships in your life, I've seen your relationship to your pain change as well. And, and I find that really fascinating. Yeah, that's a beautiful piece of insight. And, and on a personal note, I am certain that, that you felt the brunt of my rejection of my own emotional life in our early relationship. 
and and yeah, you're right. There's there's such an overlap there. There's such a connection. So this was what I was saying about sharing the common root in the, the bio, is that you have to be able to turn into it. And for a very long time, I didn't understand that a big part of, of turning into physical pain is turning into your own emotion, mm-hmm. your own emotional life as well. And and that's a, a huge part, you know, uh, the relationship, bringing it back to the, the relationship I have with my dad, I've had to turn into a lot of the emotional side of my relationship with my dad as well. And a big part of that is accepting the relationship that I can have with my dad, accepting him as a, as a human being that he is, rather than demanding the relationship I want with him, rather than demanding that he be somebody that he isn't. Mm-hmm. And this, the same is true for myself, right? Like, I, I have to live my emotional life, whether I want to or not. I can't demand that I be somebody who I am not. I can try but it doesn't work. It pushes me further into to emotional distress and, and in my case, push me into addiction. And yeah, there's a, there's a getting close to myself that had to happen and to others. It's an ongoing process for me, for sure. And in that, that turning into the emotional life is, is when, is how I finally started to address my own mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the circle can be completed that, that if I hadn't had a suppressed emotional life, if, if I had been ready to deal with my anger and ready to deal with my hatred and ready to deal with all those things instead of turning them back on myself, I probably would not have had that autoimmune reaction which triggered the, the physical pain in the first place. That had I had a, a better way of dealing with my emotional distress, if I'd been able to let the energy behind it dissipate, by experiencing my emotional life, I don't think I would have had my body attack myself. So there's no way to prove that, but that's what I believe. Mm -hmm. And in the last couple of years, you've had the incredible opportunity to be in spaces where men are able to come together and hold space for each other's emotional experience. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, um, a big part of my mental health work has been working with, uh, in a men's group. And that's one of those things that opened up, opened that door to having those deeper relationships with, with people. It's a point that you've made to me an awful lot that the women are often expected to do the emotional labor for the men in their lives. And I can see that looking back in my own life, I can see me doing that pattern and doing the men's work, having a, a place where we can bring our emotional lives or our whole lives, emotional and other, bring our shadow selves out and expose it with other men has, has made um, my relationships with men much deeper and my relationship with myself much deeper. It's been a, a really wonderful experience, in fact, um, doing the men's work. And I do emotional labor with, with my male friends uh they do emotional labor for me and i do emotional labor for them and we we work together on our issues and it's it's brought me a lot closer even even in like the work environment uh, i'm finding that that when i'm at work and i've been an open book about my mental health struggles my addiction struggles um less so about the the pain the the physical pain uh and i think part of that is i just I worry if I go around at a labor job telling people that I'm that I have paralysis, that <laughs> there's going to be some weird consequences for that. Um, 
but for me, you know, I always thought that in a work environment, you're supposed to keep your relationship professional, right? That, that there's a, a certain amount of masking that has to go on that you can only show a certain part of yourself. And in showing much greater parts of myself to the men around me in those environments, I've managed to develop what feels like deep friendships there rather than professional association. Mm-hmm. And that's, yeah, it's, it's been a, a, a cornerstone. I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about the theory and philosophy behind this recovery work without noting what the mechanics of it are. And, and from my experience, and this won't be true for everybody, but from my experience, working in the men's group has been one of the most important pieces of the mechanics of doing the, the, the recovery work. And how has this process changed the way that you relate to women and other genders in your life? I suppose the best way to answer that would be to ask the women and the other gendered people in my life. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're unfortunately not here to ask. <laughs> Uh, well, well, you are. Uh, I mean, you could speak to that. You're you're a different gender from myself. You've been in my life over the, the course of this. So maybe you can provide some of those observations from what it's like on the receiving end. Well, yeah. I mean, it's interesting to see the, the difference in emotional labor. And, you know, something that I've found that I have to emphasize to my my male friends when I'm talking about emotional labor, it's not that I don't desire to do emotional labor for you. It's that I don't want to be the only place that that's happening. And um, it's been really refreshing to be able to jump into conversations with you. And you've got thoughts that have already been processed with other people. And then, and then I feel like I get to support you in taking that into new depths. And then I know you're going to take that back to your other friends and your men's group, and you're going to explore that deeper. And then it'll come around again, and then we'll get to unpack another layer. And it's actually a lot more interesting and exciting for me. Yeah, for sure. You know, in terms of the way that we engage in our friendship, um, that dynamic is really beautiful. I think as well that there's a sense of, I feel like there's a lot more clarity I get from the way that you engage with me. And by that, I mean, you know, for some of our, the early part of our friendship, I would notice you becoming distant. I would notice you retreating and withdrawing from connection. And I didn't, I, you know, I knew that there was trauma. I knew that there was stuff that was going on and I didn't want to probe, but it was often kind of left vague and unclear. And now what I experience from you is that there is a language around that. There is a language that, you know, you might come up and say, I just need to take some space or I'm processing something that's really hard. Do you, do you have spoons to, do you have the capacity to hear about it right now? And that level of clarity helps me, I think, to feel safer in the way that I can show up for you as a friend. Yeah, that's a good observation. Um, and, and you're right, I definitely my my impulse early on was was to withdraw. Uh, I also hope that it's true that um, I have a greater capacity, a greater willingness, a greater desire to engage in emotional labor with with my non male friends for their sake to to help to engage in their emotional labor with them, mm. um, and 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 do that not just have that be a one way street anymore where the you know, the, the female's doing emotional labor for her male friend, but the, the, the male is there to do emotional labor for his female friend as well. And I'm, I'm 
desiring and hoping that that's showing up in my life as well. Thank you. Um, yeah. Is there anything else you want to add? Well, I guess just to, to wrap it up, um, I think that the issues that we've talked today are complicated issues. I have this design mantra that I know I've, I've told you before when it comes to putting something together, no matter what it is, whether I'm designing a pair of skis or a glass of beer or what my day is going to look like. Uh, I like to say complex is good. Complicated is bad. Complex, like there's a lot of moving parts, but they're all pulling together in harmony, pointing in the same direction. And, and complicated is, you know, a lot of different things moving a lot of different ways and, and very little harmony, very little, yeah, very little harmony amongst them. And the issues that we have been talking about today are complicated. They're not complex. They're messy. They're multidirectional. And each person experiences them uniquely. And I think there's a lot of commonality that we can build, but we have to remember when we're talking about these issues that they are complicated, that they are, are messy complicated. Uh, I guess that's just kind of where I want to leave that thought. Like my journey has been a long one and I feel like it's a long, long way from complete. And so if we were to have this interview in, in three years, five years time, I might look back on a lot of this and be like, that's, that was a ridiculous thing to say, but I don't know any of that yet. So I just have to be where I am and accept that, these are complicated and messy things that we're talking about. They are indeed. And I really appreciate your ability to talk about them. Thank you. Thank you. And, and thank you so much for having a place for us to talk about them. The Masculinity Podcast is made possible by the support of people like you. Please visit my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash masculinity, M-A-S-C-U-L- I-N-I-T-E-A. Your support means the world to me. And all people who support this podcast get to join our exclusive Facebook group where the conversation continues. Join us next time for more conversations about men, masculinity, and our relationships to them. In the meantime, if you have ideas, questions, or things you'd like me to talk about, give me a shout. Melina at RadicalRelationshipCoaching.ca